being shot to bits and patched up again, it was this. Now is a good time to do what you want. Riley Purefoy and Nadine Waveney married under a daftly beautiful wave of London blossom, cresting over a city that had been at war for so long that it didn't know what to do with itself. On the wall of the register office, a sign read, No Confetti, Defense of the Realm Act. The flying blossom storm took no notice of that, dizzying eddies of it on the spring breeze and mad sugar-pink drifts accumulating against the damp Chelsea curbstones. Nadine, still so skinny she wasn't having her monthlies, wore Riley's vest under Julia Locke's utterly out-of-date wedding dress from before the war, taken in. Riley was in uniform. Peter Locke, Riley's former CO, tall, courteous and almost sober, was best man. Peter's cousin Rose was maid of honour, in white gloves, and his son Tom, flaxen-haired symbol of innocence and possibility, was the page boy. No one else was there. Tom's mother, Julia, had picked early white lilac and given it to Rose to bring up from Lock Hill, but she didn't come herself. She was not well enough, or perhaps just embarrassed. It had only been a few months since her own crisis. It had only been a few months since everything. Afterwards, they went to the pub across the road, where, it turned out, Peter had earlier deposited two bottles of Krug 04, acquired he didn't care to say how. Rose was in the dark green tweed suit that she'd worn to Peter and Julia's wedding, though she thought she wouldn't mention that, and confessed to a small thrill of shame to be in a pub. It was a beautiful ceremony, and a happy day. Any fear that anyone might have had for the future of the marriage, its precipitous start, the battered souls of the bride and groom, lay unmentioned. It was a great time for not mentioning. No one wanted to remind anyone of anything, as though anyone had forgotten. The bride and groom were to spend the wedding night at Peter's mother's house in Chester Square, where the tall, handsome rooms were still draped with dust sheets and the chandeliers swathed in pale holland because the old lady still didn't dare come down from Scotland. They had not kissed. How could they? Through the long, quiet winter of 1918-19 to at Lock Hill, Nadine, so jumpy and tender, crop-headed, and he, damaged, had taken long walks with their arms around each other, spent long days curled up together on the chintz sofa, and failed over and over to go to bed at all, because they could not go to bed together and did not want to part. They had paused like bulbs underground in winter, immobilized, and reverted to a kind of reinvented virginity, as if their tumultuous romance had never been consummated during the unfettered years of war. That the war was over and things were to be different was the largest truth in the house. The next was that nobody, apart from Rose, had much idea of what happened now. But for Riley and Nadine, one immediate shift was that the sexual liberties allowed by the possibility of imminent death had disappeared like a midsummer night's dream. Their reborn chastity happened passively and without comment between them. This had seemed to each of them at the time a form of safety, but by their wedding night, Riley had become hideously aware of it and also of the fact that he did not know what his new wife was thinking on the subject. He recalled the letter she had sent him in 1915. Riley, don't you ever, ever, ever again not tell me what is going on with you. But saintly woman though she was, in fact because of her saintliness, he could not. And he was aware of the irony here. Find the words. Riley brought with him to Chester Square various accoutrements, 
his etched brass drinking straw made from a shell casing, a gift from Jarvis at the Queen's Hospital Facial Injuries Unit, a rubber thing with a bulb for squirting and rinsing, small sponges on sticks for cleaning, mouthwashes of alcohol and peppermint, his pellets of morphine carried with him in a little yellow tin which used to hold record player needles, everywhere, always, just in case. In case of what, he thought. In case someone shoots my jaw off again. Riley's mouth had for so long been the territory first of bloody destruction, then of its complex rebuilding by surgery and medical men, that he had trouble seeing it as his at all. Eating was still difficult and took a long time. Trying to chew was difficult, trying to swallow, trying not to choke, trying not to dribble, even though he couldn't always tell that he was dribbling because his nerve endings could not be relied on to know where they were. Trying to cough or stop coughing. Learning to live with somewhat undisciplined saliva and...